bringing to life the souls of the past that until now have been lost to history. Talking Heart Island is a half-hour weekly podcast that explores the history of Heart Island, America's largest mass graveyard. Heart Island has been used as New York City's Potter's Field since 1869. It is estimated there are over one million people buried there. Because of recent advances in DNA and fingerprint technology, the identities of some of these previously forgotten and anonymous people have been revealed. The results are truly shocking. Talking Heart Island will interview a special guest each week, selected from an extraordinary assembly of scholars, authors, and scientists in the fields of history, law, medicine, and the arts, as we unravel a secret kept hidden for 150 years. So welcome to Talking Heart Island. And now, here is our host, investigative history writer Michael T. Keene. Thank you very much, Norma Jean. And this is Michael Keene, and we are Talking Heart Island. Today's episode is brought to us by the Deposit Historical Society and Museum, located along the banks of the Delaware River in Deposit, New York, and the Greece, New York Historical Society and Museum, Discover, Research, and Preserve. And one more quick thing before we begin, we've been asked, how can you listen to previous episodes of the Talking Heart Island podcast? And you may do so simply by logging on to our website, michaeltkeen.com. By the late 1820s, the Five Points had already been considered a slum where poor immigrants and African-American slaves came to live and toil amid filthy tenements and converted industrial dwellings. One of its old rundown taverns, called the Old Brewery, was reported to have had a murder a night at its peak of violent outbreaks in the city. Author Charles Dickens visited Five Points in 1842 and came away with a very, very descriptive impression. He noted, so far, nearly every house is a low tavern, and on the barroom walls are colored prints of Washington and Queen Victoria of England and the American Eagle. Dickens continued, what place is this to which the squalid street conducts us? What lies beyond this tottering flight of steps that creak beneath our tread? And, you know, I can't think of anyone better to answer those questions than our guest today. Tyler Anbinder is a professor of history at Columbian College of Art and Sciences, which is George Washington University. He is a specialist in 19th century American politics and history. His most recent book, City of Dreams, is the history of immigrant life in New York City from the early 1600s to the present. And prior to that book, he published Five Points, 
uh, a fabulous book. Actually, I just finished reading it myself. And he also served as a historical consultant to Martin Scorsese for the making of his movie, The Gangs of New York. And Professor Ambinder received his PhD from Columbia University. And Professor Ambinder, thank you very much for uh, sharing your time with us on Talking Hard Island. How are you? I'm fine. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, great. You know, uh, you and I spoke, uh, whatever it was, two, three, four weeks ago. And when I found out that you were the uh, one of the consultants, or maybe the consultant, I'm not sure, uh, for the movie one, Gangs of New one York. One of the consultants. Okay. Well, I mean, I've, I've watched, I don't know how many of Martin Scorsese movies. I said, listen, if we don't do accomplish anything else today, let's talk about Martin Scorsese and your uh, uh, interactions with him in the making of his movie, uh, The Gangs of New York. Um, how were you first contacted by him or his people uh, to participate in this project? Well, I got an email. I had been doing a lot of my research for the Five Points book at the Municipal Archives in New York City. And his people were going there to the Municipal Archives, especially looking for images of the Five Points neighborhood and other other documentation they could use to help build the the sets and so forth. And so when they were there, the, the people at the archives knew me and knew the book I was working on. It wasn't out yet. It was still a couple of years from publication. And they suggested that they get in touch with me. And so they did. And so that came as, as a result of an email? Exactly. Exactly. And they it, asked me if I would um, read part of this, if I would read the screenplay and then come to New York and tell uh, Scorsese, what I thought of its historical accuracy. So you read the screenplay and you went to New York and what did you tell him? Well, uh, what they asked me to do was to go through the screenplay page by page and point out any inaccuracies I saw. And so we sat down, uh, kind of me and Scorsese at this table, and then he had quite a few minions uh, sitting kind of in the back of the room furiously taking notes. And each page I would go through and I would say, you know, on this page, I would say, well, this I know is based on something that's, you know, historically accurate, but it actually took place 30 years after the period the movie takes place. And right. you would say, yeah, I know that, but, but it's such a great detail. I really want to include that. And I'd say, okay. And we turn the page and I might get to the next page and I'd say, um, you know, you have this scene here and it, it, it combines something that happened 30 years earlier with something that happened 60 years later, you know, that, that's, that's going to mislead people. And he, he would say, yeah, I know that, but that scene <laughs> is based on a scene in the battleship Potemkin from 19, the film from 1915. And I, a lot of the scenes in the film are an homage to my favorite actors and so our directors. And so that scene has to be that way, even though I know it's historically inaccurate. I'd say, okay. And I would turn to the next page. And I said, well, this scene is inaccurate too. And he said, yes, I know that's inaccurate, but that scene appeared to me in a dream. And my <laughs> dreams are really important to my artistic vision. And so when I have a really powerful dream uh, about a film I'm working on, it has to get into the movie, even if it's not quite historically accurate. 
So I said, fine. And we go to the next page. And I don't know if you uh, have, have you seen the film lately? Well, not real lately, but I, probably in the last three, four or five years. So there's a, there's a fairly memorable scene where immigrants, it starts at the docks and immigrants are getting off the boat, uh, landing in America. Um, and the, the shot shows the immigrants getting off the boat and then it pans to a table where the immigrants are becoming citizens. And then it keeps panning over. And there's another table where those people who just became citizens are signing up for the army. And then it keeps panning. Right. And there's another uh, ship and the, the immigrants with their new army uniforms still in their hands are getting onto the ship uh, to sail off to the theater of war. And then it keeps panning to another ship uh, that's where the first immigrant ship was, but now it's a different ship. And there are caskets being taken off the ship of dead Civil War soldiers. And so I said, oh, my goodness. I said, almost everything is wrong with this. Um, you couldn't become a citizen right when you got off the boat. Even if you signed up for the army, you had to wait a couple of years. And it kind of makes it look in the scene like these immigrants are being forced into the army when really they were not forced into the army. They were actually people competed to get them into the army and paid lots of money to get immigrants to serve in their units, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, said yes, I know all that, but. <laughs> My that mother meant, told me. <laughs> well, you have to remember, this is the 1990s still. Right. It, it seems like recently, but it's still the 1990s. He said, he said, what you don't understand there is every director's jaw will drop when they see that scene, because here I go, I pan 360 degrees. And when I get back to where the first ship was, there's a totally different ship there. And he said, this is this new thing that I'm using for the first time, computer generated graphics. And he said, everyone's jaw will drop when they see this. And of course, now with our Avengers movies, that's all common but back then that was a totally new thing and he was dying to use it so i said okay so finally i get to one page and it's a scene where um the leonardo dicaprio character is leading the irish immigrants to the polls to try to get them to vote for the irish immigrant candidate for sheriff and defeat the daniel day lewis uh can uh, his candidate uh who is a nativist candidate for sheriff and that scene in the screenplay, the immigrants are being led up to the polls by Leonardo DiCaprio and they go into the polling place and they're led into these booths with curtains and the curtain is pulled closed and the immigrants are taking pencils and ticking off the name of the barber who is the candidate Leonardo DiCaprio has chosen to run for sheriff. And I said to him, I said that, I said, the problem there is people didn't vote in booths with pencils in those days. They, they, brought their ballot into the polling place on a piece of paper already filled out by the party. You got it outside the polling place. You went inside and you dropped it in a glass bowl. And Scorsese said, that I can fix. And he turns to his <laughs> minions behind him and says, change that, fix that scene. And so, and that was how, and so that was the only thing in our entire three hours we spent together that he said he was going to change. And, and I got that. He said to me at the end, he said, he said, you know, a, a film is like an opera. He said, you should no more expect to learn history from a film than you should from an opera. He said, the, the thing I want is, is, is the overall message of the film historically accurate. And that message was that, you know, the Irish immigrants literally had to fight for their rights in America against discrimination at the hands of native born Protestants. And he said, he said, that theme is accurate, right? Totally accurate. He said, then 
He said, then I'm happy. And these, these little details really don't matter because they convey the overall theme. So the movie then comes out and I go to watch it. And all the scenes are there, the scene with the 360-degree pan, the scene with the caskets, the scene with the, the, the homage to the battleship attempt, and they're all there, haven't been changed. Um, and then they get to the, the voting scene, I think. Aha! My mark on the film will finally <laughs> right. show up. And there it is. And what happens? They're led into the polling place, into booths, the curtain is closed, they tick the names off with a pencil. So even that wasn't changed. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and this was what he had told, they had told me before that, you know, he knows all the things that are wrong with the film. And it turned out that was true. He had in his office the most amazing collection of New York City history books I've ever seen. Um, mm -hmm. He had all the books published in the 19th century in their original leather bindings. He, he had an amazing collection and he, he clearly had read them all and studied them. So he knew all the, the, factual mistakes, but they didn't matter to him because, as he said, he was he, what he was trying to convey was an artistic vision with a theme, not a history lesson. Right. He was a filmmaker. Well, it, it sounds like he knew what he didn't know. Uh, and his research, like you indicated, was uh, impeccable, right? I mean, he, he did a lot of this research himself or his minions. Somebody did it, right? Um, it was a combination. It was a combination. He definitely, he had a couple of people on staff at the time there whose sole job was researching in the New York City archives, in the contemporary newspapers, um, and, and so forth. And they kind of fed him stuff. But he was a voracious reader of New York history. Uh, mm -hmm. His wife, he told me, uh, was a skirmer horn and that that family, that family definitely was a prominent family in the time that Gangs of New York took place. So, so was he, he from New York? Is he from New York? You know, I'm not the person to ask about that. Okay. That would be my my guess from talking to him, but but I don't know for sure. Right. Uh, where now? You were not living in New York at this time, right? Because you, you're in uh, the Washington D.C. area. Correct. I teach at George Washington University right. and and live in Arlington, Virginia, and and uh, GW is in. Is right across from the State Department in Washington, just down the block from the White House. So, right. So, I had to go up to New York to uh, give my my two cents, and then they would get back in touch with me every once in a while and ask for more, mm -hmm. ask for my opinion on more things, and, and that was how it worked. Right. And um, tell us the little vignette that you and I had talked just before we went live about uh, your near contact with Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh yes, so so I had a I had a colleague at uh, at George Washington University um, who had a picture on his door of of himself with um, uh, the name of the guy who plays Donald Trump on Saturday Night Live. Uh, that actor, um, right, right, right. You know who I'm talking about. So he yeah, had do, been a sure. student at George Washington University and had taken a class with my colleague. So I was jealous of this, and so my hope was in this, uh, in my working with Scorsese, that I would could get a picture of myself with one of these famous actors and put that on my door too. So the day I go in uh, to go over the screenplay in detail, um, I'm looking around, wondering if there are any stars around, and there don't appear to be. And I'm ushered into this room where uh, the the minions are, and Scorsese hasn't come in yet. And then I hear this kind of 
uh, commotion in the hallway that I've just left. And I turn and look over my shoulder and out the door, I can see uh, this head of gorgeous hair with, with all these uh, uh, people behind him. And then Scorsese came in and he said, oh, that was Leo. I wish you could have met him. And, and he said, I'm sure you'll have another chance down the road uh, to meet him or, or Daniel. And, uh, but of course, that, that ended up not happening. They, they went to, uh, you know, they filmed the film actually in Italy. Did you know that? No, I did not. No. In fact, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. Yes. The entire movie was filmed in Rome. And the reason was Scor uh, Scorsese was also working on a, a documentary about the history of the most famous uh, Italian film studio, Cinecittà, uh, which kind of means film city. And uh, so he wanted to film it. He said the reason he was filming in Rome was because it cost less. But the, the underlying reason was, you know, there's a lot of downtime for the director while they're setting up the shots and building the scenery right. and so forth. They're actually not filming all day, every day. And so at the times that he wasn't on set, he would go over to the archive of Cine Chita and watch old films and gather material for this documentary he made. Great. You know, uh, other than, well, so you almost met Leo. I take it you didn't come close to meeting Cameron Diaz. So that, that you know, how did you know? So that was my goal. My goal, my secret goal was to have a picture yes. of myself with Cameron Diaz. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And I'm afraid. And so they invited me to come to Italy, but, you know, I was in the middle of, yeah, I had just started my semester teaching and I couldn't leave my students. And then by the time my semester was over and they said, oh, you can come when the semester's over. But by the time the semester was over, they had wrapped, or at least they had wrapped with Cameron Diaz and Leonardo DiCaprio and Daniel Day-Lewis. They said, we're doing, you know, this secondary filming, you know, with extras and stuff, if you want to come for that. And, uh, but, and I said, no, not really. So, um, so there was my chance, my fleeting chance for, there it is. for a photo with tell Cameron it, Diaz. Tell us a little bit about, uh, I guess it's your most recent book, City of Dreams. Is that correct? Is your most recent? Right. That book came out in the fall of 2016. It's a history of immigrant life in New York City from the first Dutch settlers all the way to the present. So while mm -hmm. Five Points is kind of a deep dive into the history of one neighborhood over the course of the 19th century, looking how it, it an Irish neighborhood and eventually becomes an Italian neighborhood, and then at the very end, even a Chinese neighborhood, a City of Dreams is kind of a more panoramic uh, view of immigrant life in New York City. And you know, the focus is on how through every generation and through every century and for every immigrant group, whether it's English or Irish or German or Italian or Chinese today, that the immigrant story really stays pretty much the same, that immigrants have the same experiences pretty much. Um, they're treated the same way by the natives pretty much. And even though the natives at the beginning look at the new group and say, oh, those guys can never become true Americans, by the end, uh, that group becomes accepted. And, and then the, the, new group, the next new group becomes the one that's suspect until they become true Americans, too. Right. Um, the, uh, your book, Five Points, and really the movie, uh, even though... Martin Scorsese uh, telescoped it uh, in certain uh, respect. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the story of Irish uh, immigration correct? I mean, initially, the Irish come to New York because of the potato famine. 
Uh, can you tell us how that all began? Sure. So Ireland was very poor. Um, in part, it had always been kind of poor, but especially because after the English colonized it, beginning in the 1600s, they kind of bled it of resources. They took the land, most of the land from the Irish landowners and gave it to, you know, as rewards to the English who supported the crown. And those English landlords would collect the rents and take most of the money back to England. And so Ireland had become increasingly poor over the course of the 18th and 19th century, so much so that by the middle of the 19th century, probably about half the Irish population ate nothing but potatoes. Potatoes for breakfast, mm -hmm. potatoes for lunch, potatoes for dinner, and boil. And, you know, not, you know, maybe they had some salt put on them. Um, maybe if they were lucky, a little butter, but usually not. And just boiled potatoes was all that about half of the Irish population ate by the uh, middle of the 1800s. And so when this blight hit the potato crop in uh, 1845, uh, and it killed about half the potato crop in 1845, and then 90% of the potato crop in 1846, it just had devastating consequences for those people who were dependent, literally dependent on potatoes for every meal they ate all year. And so out of a population of about 8 million before the blight struck, uh, about a million died of starvation or starvation-related diseases, and another one and a half to two million fled uh, to try to save themselves, and the bulk of that group went to the United States, and more, more went to New York City than any other place. And so you end up with these neighborhoods in New York City, like Five Points, that had, had been you know, Irish before. Um, but now become overwhelmingly so. So five points by the 1850s, it's, you know, the adult population is 95, you know, 90% Irish. And other neighborhoods in New York that had a smattering of Irish become very Irish as well. So that, you know, by 1855, there are, you know, New York has more Irish people than any city in Ireland. And, uh, and, you know, probably about, probably as many Irish-born people in New York by 1855 as there are New York-born people. So it was a huge change for the Irish and for New York. Right. Um, let me ask you, I guess it's a dumb question. You're not from New York, um, and yet you write this book about five points. What, what drew you to this uh, area of uh, study and, and your book? Well, I am originally from New York. So I wasn't okay. born there. I was born in Cambridge, Mass., but moved to New York when I was five. And I grew up not in the city, but in, in the suburbs in Westchester and, and spent lots of time in New York City. And as a teenager, actually, one of the things my friends and I would do is we would take the Metro North train down from Westchester and go to New York and we would take the subway down to lower Manhattan and we would buy what we thought were cool clothes on Canal Street. And then we would go over to Chinatown and have dim sum. And I just, and so we did that for years. And then once I decided to become a historian, I discovered that that place I had gone for dim sum was this once very famous neighborhood called Five Points. And so when it came time to look for a, a second book topic, I was immediately drawn to the idea of writing the history of that neighborhood, especially once I found out it had never been written. How, how long did the research and the writing take you? 
Oh, it, it, it took a while, you know. So my first book was published in 1992 and Five Points came out in 2001. So, and I had two kids in between and those, those take a lot of time. So it kind of depends how you count. So on, on, on the one hand, it was nine years between the publication of one and the, and the, the publication of the next. On the other hand, I had those kids in 1992 and 1994. And I probably took a year off from, from research to, to help with each of those. So once I really got working on it, it was about three years of research and then two years of writing. Did the research take you to New York City? Like like Martin Scorsese, you know, when he came uh, to do his research? Oh, absolutely. So I spent, and, and by this point, I was, when I started working on the book, I was teaching at the University of Wyoming. That was where I had my, my first job wow. after graduate school. And so uh, the nice thing about working on Five Points was it gave me an excuse to go back to New York often with my babies and visit the grandparents. So I would leave leave the kids with my grand with my parents in uh uh on the upper west side and then i would take the subway down to lower manhattan and go to the municipal archives or i'd go to midtown and go to the new york public library which has an amazing collection i spent a lot did a lot of the work at the new york historical society which also has an amazing collection and so i spent a lot of time at those three places and then i moved to washington in 1994 and then, but you know, at that point, I'd take Metro, I'd take Amtrak up to New York and spend two or three days at a time working at those mainly those three places. Fascinating. You know, uh, first of all, I, we only have like a minute left. I, I can't believe the time has uh, flown by. Um, are you working on anything now? I am. I've decided to go back to the story of the Irish in New York. Mm-hmm. So, what I'm working on now is. Uh, uh, the working title of the book is The Great Famine and the Making of Irish New York. And what I'm looking at is I'm looking at the famine immigrants and the lives they made for themselves in New York. And what I'm doing that's a little different than the typical uh, history books of that kind, which will typically, you know, choose a city and look at kind of Irish neighborhoods in that city, like I did with Five Points. What I'm doing instead is I'm taking a group of immigrants who worked um, who had accounts at the Emigrant Savings Bank, which was this bank that was opened by the Irish in New York to try to encourage the Irish immig- famine immigrants to save. So I'm using their depositors as my subjects. And the bank records are very detailed. You have great detail about the lives of these immigrants. And so I can trace their lives over 10, 20, 30 years. And so I can have a very much more fine-grained kind of uh, look at the lives of the famine immigrants than, than anyone's really been able to have before. Can you, uh, do you have your own uh, website? So I have, I don't have a personal website like so many authors do these days, but through, I have a website through my job at George Washington University. So if, okay. if you Google Tyler Anbinder, it immediately mm-hmm. takes you to my, my George Washington University website. And that has links to all my articles, which you can you can get through there for free. The other website I have that I, I recommend to your listeners is my that book project on the famine and the making of Irish New York has its own website, which is okay. called beyondragstoriches.org. Wow. That's okay. all one word, beyondragstoriches.org. And that has not only does it does it summarize the project, but it, it's a great thing for your listeners because it has 
hundreds and hundreds of documents about the lives of Irish famine immigrants, and they're organized by individual. And so you can choose a person and then look and kind of be your own historian and, and recreate their story by looking at the, the actual documents. There are images of these handwritten documents for each immigrant. And they're organized so you can look, you know, if, if you're a, an Irish American whose ancestors are, say, from County Kerry, you can choose just to look at immigrants from County Kerry. You know, if your Irish ancestor was a carpenter or a saloon keeper, you can look just at saloon keepers or just at carpenters. And so it's a really, it's a really fun site. And uh, I highly recommend it to your listeners. Well, great. Uh, Professor Ann Binder, I want to thank you uh, very much for being a guest on Talking Hard Island. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Hi, this is Norma Jean. I wanted to take a moment to remind you, in order to receive updates or news about upcoming episodes of Talking Heart Island, simply go to the subscribe page on our website, located at www.michaeltkeen.com, and enter your email address. If you have any questions, about the podcast itself, or simply wish to contact any team members for book inquiries, voiceovers, website or graphics design, use our contact page, also found at www.michaeltkeen.com. And if you're enjoying the show and would like to give us a review, please do so at iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. So until next week, this is Norma Jean. And we're Talking Heart Island.